As many of us are confined all around the world, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast in partnership with Radio Halara, emitting from Palestine. Our ambition for it is not to add to the saturation of information about the pandemic we are currently experiencing, but rather to propose a 15-minute extension of our political imaginaries every day. The concept is very simple. Every day we ask one person the same question. What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. While we are recording this podcast in privileged conditions of confinement, we keep in our thoughts the multitude of people around the world who do not share similar conditions or have no choice but to risk being affected by the pandemic because of criminal policies that have to do with neoliberalism, carceralism or colonialism. We thank you for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hello everyone, uh, today is the 19th episode of our daily series uh, of uh, podcast in confinement, uh, a moment of true decolonization. And our guest is uh, Nish Morris, who is a community organizer, a sports coach and a writer based on Kulin Nation territory in so-called Melbourne of so-called Australia. Uh, he is a settler to these lands with a family history rooted in India and Fiji. Uh, he has been organizing with a collective anti-colonial Asian alliance since early 2019 and volunteers with RISE, refugees, survivors and ex-detainees. Uh, and his writing is featured in New Matilda and Junkie. Uh, hi, Nish. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. Uh, I'm uh, very glad that we're getting to do this together since it uh, has been a, a few months that I, I, I was very enthusiastic with the idea that we could do something together. And so um, I think you have, um, in your case, you have a pretty sp precise moment of decolonization you wanted to share with us. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, So this might be kind of a little bit of a like long-winded explanation because I'll try to set the scene for um, your listeners and readers as best I can. But what I want to talk about is a frontline land defense campaign, so a blockade sort of campaign that's been going on um, by the name of the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy. So uh, this is a site-based a few hours west of Melbourne city and what has been proposed by the Victorian state government is a freeway duplication project. So there's a Western highway that is um, meant to be duplicated. And in those duplication plans, uh, as they currently stand, they would bulldoze and destroy, um, many, many kilometers of sacred uh, Aboriginal land, sacred Japarong land. And uh, when the community, so the Japarong community, which I want to be clear, I'm not a part of that community. Like you mentioned in my intro, I'm a settler supporter of this campaign, um, but not one of the mob who are the rightful owners of, those, of that land. Um, 
they set they set up a blockade. Um, so they set up an embassy and they set up three campsites over about a 15 kilometer stretch. This was almost two years ago now, and the blockade still stands and the campaign is still the fight is still sort of underway in, in an interesting position right now. But the specific sort of day or moment I wanted to talk about that uh, that immediately jumped into my head when uh, you sent me the prompt for this series was a day last year, early last year, I think maybe March or April, where the, poli- the, the camps, the blockade had been in place for several months. The police had come to the camps the night before and told some of the land defenders that works to destroy their country would be beginning tomorrow and that if they tried to do anything to intervene, they would be arrested, taken to jail, fined, whatever it may be. Um, we managed, so as upon hearing that, immediately a call out was put out um, for supporters to come down to make the blockade as strong as possible. I would have left Melbourne City about 5am the next morning and driven up. It's about a three hour drive. So I arrived there a bit after 8am from memory with a car full of friends and comrades. And when we arrived, the police had already blocked off the entrance to the campsite on both sides of the road. So what we had to do and a lot of other people who came to stand in solidarity had to do was park further up the freeway and walk through a bunch of farms to get to the blockade point. Um, but when we did arrive there, there was maybe 80 to 100 people there to support the campaign and to blockade and to stand in solidarity. There was mostly people from Melbourne, some local people from the sort of surrounding town, some Aboriginal folk from interstate had even come down who have sort of run embassies in other states um, had come down. So a crew from the Portland embassy in Queensland had come down. And yeah, all in all, I think there was maybe a hundred of us. And what sort of happened that day was uh, throughout the day, a sort of larger and larger police presence grew on this site. Um, and they negotiated with some of the elders and some of the leaders of the campaign, so some Japarang people. And the first deal they offered was to suggest, if you let us bring in our machinery, we will promise you we won't do any work today or tonight. We won't do anything until tomorrow, which is obviously not a great deal because I'm not sure what they'd be bringing in equipment for that could destroy these sacred trees for any other purpose than destroying the sacred trees, right? So clearly that deal was rejected. And then the police informed the people, the Japan people they were negotiating with, that, okay, we're going to bring them in anyway without your consent. Um, at that point, uh, all the supporters got in a formation at the gate where the machinery would need to come through and sort of form just like a physical blockade um, and there was probably 30 or 40 of us in that blockade staring at a line of 30 or 40 police staring back at us um, heavily armed police and for hours 
that was just what was happening. There was no machinery in the area. It was just us staring at the police. Um, and we kind of, after a while, since this was getting into later in the afternoon, since the police getting a bit restless, they were doing shift turnovers, the numbers were dwindling a little bit um, as they did that. And... And... While there were supporters standing and sitting in that blockade formation like I described, there was also some elders and mob sitting at a campsite a little bit further down the road. Uh, and I could remember from the sitting in the blockade, I could overhear, but I couldn't see, I could overhear some of the older uh, Japarang people and some mob from interstate as well, I think, started to just like... I would describe it as like trash talking the cops or like just sort of talking crap to the cops. And um, I really vividly remember um, them asking one Asian cop, like he, I think he was the only cop there that was a person of color, right? The rest of them were white. And these Aboriginal people were asking this Asian cop what he's doing working for a white supremacist institution. Um, whether he thinks his colleagues care about him or not. Um, and this officer wasn't replying, but it was like, it was, uh, yeah, very provocative. And I think like that would, would have gone home with that particular cop, those messages. Um, but then what I noticed is that some of the, uh, elders and some of the Aboriginal community who were at the campsite had started dancing, some had started chanting and they'd sort of started marching towards the police line and so all of us sitting there in the blockade were seeing them sort of march and they were about to march past us and we weren't sure whether we should hold up positions in the blockade or jump over the fence and join them as they were marching towards the police and in the end I think we, this wasn't ver verbally decided but I think we all just thought it was pretty late in the afternoon that the machinery probably wasn't coming that day. So it was probably all right for us to leave that blockade and join in this march and march towards the police line with them. And we did that and we arrived at the police line, which was a line of armed police backed up by a few squad cars, a few police cars. And as we got closer, the police started backing up and the squad cars started slowly reversing and slowly turning around. Um, and then the on foot police officers sort of went ahead and it was just a line of us, the protesters, land defenders, um, almost encircling this one police car it ended up that was slowly driving back down the road, maybe like at 10 kilometers an hour, like really slowly creeping. and what ended up happening is we marched those cops and the cop car all the way out of the road out of the area, which was probably went for a, a kilometer. And eventually they just left the premises. Um, and sort of some of the Japarong people, the leaders of that campaign turned around and immediately started celebrating that we'd managed to evict the police from their country. Um, felt like a really, powerful moment and as we were walking back towards our campsite I really vividly remember one of my friends who's a Japarong person saying 
that they never thought in their lifetime they would be able to evict the cops off their own country and that that is the most real and tangible form of decolonization that they've ever felt. Um, so yeah, it fit perfectly with the prompt that you gave to me. Yeah. Can you give us just uh, in a few words um, an insight of uh, the current uh, status of the of the protection of the land? Yeah, so it's, it, it's in an interesting sort of confusing space now. Um, I will give like uh, as much information as I feel like it's right for me to do, like I mentioned before. Absolutely. Um, yes. I'm not the best spokesperson for all the intricacies of this. Um, yeah. But basically is there uh, actually after i'll back up a little bit to give you the context because after that day after we evicted them we were preparing to sort of have to do that almost every day right um but the very next day thankfully a uh, court injunction went through and it's hard to keep track in my head now because there's been so many different legal challenges and sort of court proceedings and um injunctions and such but at that point it went to the federal environment minister to uh, to have to reevaluate the case um, and to have to um, come up with a resolution or a decision about what was going to happen. Um, so that delayed things a few months and gave people a little bit of time and there wasn't having to be that like... Uh, large-scale frontline land defense, even though there was ongoing frontline land defense sort of presence all the time. Um, but basically now it's like in court, there's like court proceedings happening. Um, and, a, and what just got announced in the last couple of weeks is that the Victorian Ombudsman is investigating the whole process. So I assume that means investigating how government made their decisions, um, whether there was corruption at play, Uh, how they've responded to protests. Um, but basically my interpretation is that there has, there has been a delegation of Draparong people who have like had to engage in a like federal court mediation. And my interpretation is that the front the strength of like ongoing unwavering frontline land defense sort of forced the embassy um, into a position of legal legitimacy that they otherwise wouldn't have had. And by, by legal, I mean like in terms of colonial law, not sort of any sort of uh, concept of just law or justice. But um, yeah, the strength of the... Uh, frontline land defense and the unwillingness to back down um, sort of forced the state to uh, acknowledge the embassy as sort of a, like a legitimate entity. But yeah, it's all still it's all still up in the air and up for contest. I'm not sure what time this will likely get published, but as of now where I am in Melbourne, so-called Melbourne is 8.30pm. Tomorrow morning at 11am Melbourne time, there is a 
hearing, which is going to be broadcast, uh, there's a link which I have sent to you, which you can make available to your listeners if you would like, of... Uh, it's the conclusion, so the um, findings of a coroner's court case into an Aboriginal woman's death in police custody. So uh, that woman's name is Auntie Tanya Day. Um, a lot of community members, Aboriginal community members and supporters, uh, including myself, sat in on the hearings in the coroner's court last uh, late last year. Um, and it felt like quite a interesting dynamic because usually these proceedings where police officers always get off for killing Aboriginal people, um, it felt a little bit different because there was all these eyes in the courtroom on them where you, I think they're very used to sort of doing that behind closed doors and they didn't like it at all. And so obviously it's a different scenario now um, where we can't physically be there in person, but we're still trying to encourage as many people to listen in and try to uh, create a viewership that hopefully makes the state feel like they have some greater level of accountability than they would usually have. So that um, is 11am tomorrow morning, Melbourne time, if anyone would like to tune in. Great. Well, I'll, I'll make sure to publish a video in the next couple of hours and as a video, the podcast in in the next couple of hours so that uh, this message can be as widespread as possible. And we will indeed uh, add the links to the to the page itself. Uh, perhaps a little sh shout out to our copy editor, Carol Quay, who also was uh, part of this campaign and uh, is the reason why you and I know each other to begin with. So <laughs> thanks. Hi, Carol. Yes, hi, Carol. <laughs> and uh, I thank you very much, Nish, for this, um, this contribution to the series in, in the most sort of in the way that it was originally thought, like to talk about like one very particular moment. So thanks a lot and uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you for having me. It was nice to talk to you again. That's all for today. Find us tomorrow again for a new episode as part of this daily podcast series. And if you're a subscriber to The Finalist, remember that you have access to every single article we published in the past in their online version on our website. Thank you very much and take care.